What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Up Podcast. Just finished off the series against the Los Angeles Dodgers. Didn't start well. Ended better. A little Luis Guillorme walk-off hit in the 10th inning. So things ended on a positive note. Hopefully we can make that momentum and that positivity push into the next series against the Chicago White Sox. As always, we'll go through all the games, all the stuff that happened this past weekend with the Mets and the Dodgers, as well as preview the next series against the Chicago White Sox for you guys. So make sure you follow us on all our social media at MetsUp on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you're looking for the YouTube version of what you're listening to here, go check the New York Mets YouTube channel. You'll be able to see the video version. And if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever it is, drop us a rating, drop us a review, download and subscribe. James, a little bit of a at-home episode here, just getting things going, a little crazy weather today in New York. It's been a weird weekend. It felt like it's going to rain every single day. It rains a little bit, then it doesn't. Very humid. Don't like it. Like I said, a little bit of an at-home episode, even though it's entirely an at-home episode. There's no like there's no like gray area between having an at-home episode and an in-stadium episode. This is an at-home episode. My first episode at home too, and like not definitely not the worst thing to kind of get delayed out of that stadium. Again, not for the fans that were there. It was a long delay, but shout out the Mets for giving everyone a free ticket voucher for a weekday game the rest of the year. But I myself got trapped in the O'Hare airport yesterday for like seven hours. It was a ridiculously awful experience. Uh, bad Albert, airport. Bad yeah. airport. Uh, there, were, there were some decent options. Uh, the airline, no free ads. The airline that starts with a U really bones me. Really, really just what an awful situation for that with that airline. To, a flight got delayed out of Reno and then missed my connecting flight. And then two other flights from Chicago, New York got just straight up canceled. So there were like 50 people waiting on the standby line, flight to flight to flight. And like, luckily, I... I don't even know how or why. I think I just had like the right look, the right feel when I went to the customer service and she was like, I'll, I'm going to make you a priority, a priority standby user and $50 of meal vouchers. So I picked that in the airport and then just like bounced from like flight to flight to flight to flight. and got on like the fourth or fifth one out of Chicago, which was a miracle. Also flew with um, an old woman who I became friends with during the standby madness. I was third in the standby line for this one flight. It was like three flights before the one I got out. And um, an old woman and her husband were one and two. They said they had one seat available. So I'm like, oh, nice. This couple's going to vouch to stay together. And then I'm going to get on a plane. Wrong. The older gentleman was just like, I'll take this one. You, you'll get the next one to his wife. And she was like, oh, no okay. way. Yep. And then she she like didn't speak very much English at all. And I just hung out with her for the next like three hours, like walked to her from like gate to gate. So we can, and then we ended up getting on the same flight together. <laughs> Until LaGuardia. Nice, nice. So you got to be her travel buddy, at least for that. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Her, her husband landed before she even got on a plane. So I, I, I helped her. It was a nice young man that kept her company for those couple of hours in the O'Hare airport. Uh, bought her a smoothie with my meal voucher cards. Nice. But yeah, it was, it was rough. Yeah, that's, uh, that's tough. That, that sounds like an awful experience for sure. I don't know, man. Crazy weekend. Crazy weekend, especially for baseball. And it didn't it just didn't start off well, especially with game one. Uh we kind of I kind of felt like we knew we were doomed when Brandon Nimmo hit that rope off of Julio Rios off the top of the fence. Literally, it's not like it hit like the front of the fence or like the corner of top of the fence. It hit the actual top of the fence in right center field and somehow bounced back into the field of play. Mookie Betts had one of these in game two that completely just like skidded across and went over for a home run. I've never seen anything like it. It was originally ruled a home run somehow. I don't know how the umpires even came up with that. Ruled it a home run, obviously overturned. That felt like once that happened, it was like, oh, we have no shot. Like that That's baseball saying, you thought, just kidding, double. And then we didn't get him in, and it was the only hit of the game. Didn't see a hit after the first batter of the game for the Mets. 
No, didn't see hit after that batter. And also, Pete Alonso walked later that inning, and the Mets wouldn't even get another walk the rest of the game either. So we got a walk and hit in the first inning, and we wouldn't get any of those the rest of the game. It was, it was, I don't know if the Friday game felt kind of dystopian. Just the just Julio Rios would really struggle in the first half and was coming off an injury. Looked like looked like Sandy Koufax out there. He was a complete world be there. It was it was a rough one. Um, I guess silver lining is amazing how much better Brand Nimmo's gotten against left-handed pitchers over the last few years. Just like looking at his looking at his growth for against the same side pitchers is really got a superstar. He's an amazing player. He got that nice hit, but that was yep that was the, that was the only hit the whole game. Yeah, I mean, even his second at bat, he smoked the ball. I think it was the center field. Absolutely crushed it, just right at somebody. So it was like, couldn't buy a hit, couldn't figure out a way to do it. I blame Ernie. I went to the game with him, our friend, you know, of course, who came became a Mets fan last September and uh, left the Marlins. They were, they're doing great things. Mets are, have not been. So I blame Ernie. No, I'm just kidding. It's not his fault. Just got to play better. I mean, one hit, it's pretty impossible to win. Verlander also wasn't his sharpest in this start. Like, he wasn't bad the first four or five innings-ish. But there's a lot of walks, there's a lot of three-two counts. Couldn't get that stri- strikeout swing and miss pitch that he desperately needed. A lot, a lot of long at bats. It was a one-hit game, and this game went three hours. Like that doesn't really happen. Yeah, and it all kind of unraveled for Verlander in the fifth. He walked Jason Hayward, James Outman, and Miguel Rojas, three straight batters in the fifth, and those were the seven, eight, and nine hitters. And then you have Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman, who every Mets fan saw this weekend. Why those are still two of the best players in baseball? What? What a marvel to watch Mookie Betts play second base so well. It's kind of ridiculous. Like this whole Mookie Betts middle infield thing like started right after I feel like we played them in April. So we didn't get a chance to see it. Maybe he played one game of shortstop before then. Then he was out for whatever reason. I don't know if it was an injury or if it was like paternity or bereavement, something that happened that series. I don't remember for Mookie Betts, but he was flawless as a middle infield. It was really amazing to see that play he made just to skip around a little bit against Francisco Lindor on Sunday where he charged it and made a perfect throw on the move like like with good velocity closing the ball really well Ron and Gary were like wow there's a six-time goal glover in the outfield Mookie Betts playing second but yeah this um that, that inning for Verlander got bad because then Betts and Freeman would drive in Hayward Outman and Rojas and that would be the three runs all the Dodgers need in that game and ironically it was a weird start for Verlander because fastball probably had the best life I think it had all season he kind of, he kind of got good, some good movement on it, and he got induced eight whiffs, which was high for him this year on that pitch. But he had so much trouble just spotting the breaking stuff all night. His curveball only had thirty five percent zone rate, uh, zone rate, and that's a pitch that has been really useful for him in getting called strikes this year. It's a fifty percent zone rate on the season. He wasn't dropping it in as much as he probably could have been against a left handed heavy Dodgers lineup, and it's just the slider wasn't really doing everything as well. And all in all, he had six walks. His first time walking six since 2017 when it really felt like his career was on the downturn. And he only walked seven one time in his career. And that was in 2006. Yeah, I mean, after the game, Verlander like, took a lot of, of, I don't want to say credit. What's the right word? He took a lot of accountability. The, the blame. Accountability. He was very accountable. He's like, listen, I walked six guys. Like, It's very hard to like pitch well and keep your team in it when you walk six. Like, He knew that he did not perform well. He knew he didn't give us a start that we needed. It was unfortunate. It was unfortunate, but really also at the end of the day, one hit. One hit against Julio Arias and the Dodgers. Just can't you can't win a game if you don't score runs. And the Mets did not score any runs, so it really didn't matter what happened on the pitching side. It wasn't possible to win this one. Not great vibes coming out of the All-Star break, not gonna lie. It was really it's at the stadium, like the 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 energy was there. The energy was there. Obviously, there's a lot of Dodgers fans in the stadium too, because they travel extremely well. But like the Mets fans, like from the start. We're rowdy, ready to go. When that Nimmo ball went into, you know, what we thought was a home run, people were jumping, screaming, excited. Like there was there was hype there. 
and just kind of dissipated and dissipated throughout the game just because of the lack of offense. So kind of killed the vibes a little bit, but lose game one. Moving on to game two here, though. You got Kodai Senga on the bump. He's been the best pitcher on the Mets all season long. Super excited. Got a chance to tie up the series, and Kodai was fantastic again. No, and this is, keeps moving on a run that Kodai's had over the last month or so where he's really, really stepped into his own here. And you see like a lot of these adjustments that have been coming on this whole season working all together. Wound up with six stri- uh, six innings, nine strikeouts, four hits, one earned run, two walks in this game. And you see here the four hits, the earned run, the two walks, right? Mookie Betts had three hits and a home run. So that's three of the four hits and the single earned run. J.D. Martinez had an infield single, and the two walks were Freddie Freeman and Will Smith. That was it. So the only guys who were even able to reach base against Kodai Sang. I think there was a hit by pitch in there, but if I remember correctly, it was all some at the top of the order, but I can't remember. But anyone who actually did damage against Kodai in this game were Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, Freddie Freeman, Will Smith. I think I think the hit by pitch was actually... Baseball. Yeah, and the hit by pitch, I think, was Muncie. So there was just absolutely... No chance by any Dodger that wasn't an elite baseball player. And even the ones that were elite, besides Mookie, Kodai really, really, really did well. Keep them at bay. He's been really aggressive. We talked about his willingness to pitch inside a few times on this show over the last few months. And he was really attacking these Dodgers hitters inside all game. Lots of fastballs inside to the righties. And lots of cutters, again, to the lefties that were coming inside to them. That pitch has really come on for Kodai in a big way. Second most thrown in this game. His usage has really just gone way up over the last five or six starts. It's something that he didn't really have so much, or he had it, but he wasn't using it as much when he first started for this team earlier this year. And now it's a weapon. And something he's using really 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 well to get like to attack hitters when he's behind in the count it was his most thrown pitch in one no counts and he didn't even have the many one no counts because he was really creative on the first pitch of at bats to keep the dodgers hitters on their toes and not really let them get comfortable he threw two sweepers this game in total a pitch that we've barely seen for kodak for the last few months both of those were get me over sweepers first pitch of at bats three curveballs similar to the sweeper all three with the first pitch at bat also, haven't seen many of those recently at all. And that variation really helped him stay up in front of hitters. He didn't face a 3-0 count all game. It was just amazing. And then all that stuff, getting ahead in the counts, working aggressively with the fastball and the cutter inside hitters, that brings on the ghost fork. Sets it up perfectly. Eight whiffs on 12 swings. It was just silly. Dodgers hitters weren't close to it all night. They actually only put one in play, and it was 79 miles an hour. And with this amazing game, Kodai's fork ball, ghost fork, jumped ahead of Blake Snell's curveball, had the highest whiff rate of any pitch wow. in baseball with a minimum of 150 thrown 59.6 percent of times that the ghost fork has been swung at hitters have swung through it the highest mark for any single pitch in baseball minimum 150 thrown i mean he's absolutely filthy the ghost fork is a legit unhittable pitch it's it's incredible how successful he's been able to be with that pitch because we've seen guys like Daisuke come over who have these these new pitches that we haven't seen the gyro ball was the big thing with Daisuke. But eventually, like, even in this first season or so, like, guys started to figure it out a little bit. But this ghost fork, the way that he tunnels it with that four seam, makes it so, so hard to pick up, so hard to adjust to. And when you're getting guys, like you said, elite hitters in this Dodgers lineup is making them look foolish, you know you got something cooking there. Also got to talk about Brandon Nimmo again because he hit the home run in this game to score the only run. Uh, he had two, or he had one of the three hits in this game, so he had two of the last four hits in the first two games. Again, just Brandon Nimmo, one of the most underrated players in baseball, continues to play great center field, continues to show more and more power, which is just such a huge, huge addition to his game for a guy who gets on base, hit for average, did all that other stuff. And it was like, when's the power going to come? He's a big, strong dude. We're starting to see it. It was great to see him tie it up immediately well, in the next inning as soon as uh, the Mets went down one nothing. 
But then, of course, this game kind of hit a little bit of a lull, a little bit of a pitcher's duel here. Tony Gonsolin was pitching well enough where the Mets couldn't really get anything against him. But then he jumped to the eighth inning where, unfortunately, the game you know, went the other way. Uh, we had Adam Adovino in the game for this one, and he just wasn't his sharpest again, just couldn't really get those outs that we needed. No, he couldn't. And it wasn't really even the worst inning. There was a double play opportunity that would have got them out of the inning. Alonzo just kind of sailed the ball. Yeah. To Lindor at second. That is a difficult throw when you catch the ball like in the baseline as a first baseman. You have to basically throw it over the guy's head to get to the shortstop. And in trying to do that, he put it over the guy's head. Lindor to jump and get it. That kind of offset them a little bit. And who was running? Was it David Peralta? I think it was David Peralta running at first base, if I'm not mistaken. Beat out the throw back. The tying run scored. But only that one run came in. Alavino did get tough and get the final outs with men on base. And then we had a little rally cooking in the bottom of the eighth. First and third, nobody out after it was a Tommy Pham yeah. walk and then a Marcana single. No, Canada was a pinch hitter. No, someone else the same. It was an Al- it was an Alvarez rope ball to left yes, field, wasn't it? That was Didn't it. He yeah, one yeah. to left. He hit yes, it like one fourteen, which is just absolutely smoked. He's such a good hitter. He's so On good. A pitch. You guys know about him, yeah. And then, uh, then we just didn't score three straight strikeouts by Canna DJ Stewart. No, DJ Stewart's pinch hit Bailey. It was it was. It, just three straight strikeouts there. Didn't get the man from third in, and you kind of felt a little bit of a deflation in the ballpark, in the vibes, in the mood of everything, because you get a man at third base in a tie game in the eighth inning. You have a chance to basically take the lead, step on the team's throat. David Robinson, your closer, is ready to go. You can win a game right there. Didn't happen. Got to the ninth inning, and this was this was one of the lower points of the Mets season this inning. I think we said that a few times, but... Grant Hartwig came in. He wasn't super. He, he was. He pitched fine. It wasn't like a lot of super hard contact, but there were a lot of men on base. Hard to ask Grant Hartwig to get uh, the top of the Dodgers order out. And then Max Muncy hit a pop up that Brett Beatty misplayed. You guys have all seen the highlight by now, I'm sure. Brett also again took massive accountability after the game after a bad play, just saying it was inexcusable. The play it had to be made. After that, there was a hit parade. Dodgers wound up taking a four a four a four run lead, and that was it. Yep, that was it for that one. Uh, Mets went down pretty easily as well in the ninth. Yeah, it was really it, that that big moment was the first and third in the eighth when Canna came up pinch hitting for DJ Stewart and the pop up to the infield. That was like again just kind of I feel like as Mets fans we've gotten used to like knowing when it's not going to work and when that happened you're like ah dang I just probably we're probably in trouble here a little bit here with the bottom of the order coming up. So wasn't great. Lost game two. Don't really want to talk more about it. Don't really want to. Uh, shout out to my friends that came out to the game. They, they'd not been to uh, a Mets game this season, especially without Senga. So that was the first time they got to see Senga on the mound. So they got to see the Senga, like Sega thing that goes on the scoreboard along with the Ghost Fork. They were loving it. They're like, that. that is awesome. Very, very cool. And they were happy to see Kodai pitch. Let's talk about game three, though, here. Because game three, hey, we got to win. We got to win on the board. Granted, they made us sweat it out. They made us really, really stress this one out. Only a 2-1 win, but we take those, especially when it's a walk-off. I mean, walk-offs are fun against the Dodgers, as always. Max Scherzer is the story of this one, though. He gave us seven fantastic innings. Yeah, really strong, Max Scherzer. Seven innings, six strikeouts, only allowed one hit. There were so many lazy fly balls and pop-ups hit by the Dodgers all afternoon. That fastball had a lot of life, and it seemed like they weren't very ready for it. Again, the fastball had a lot of life. Scherzer really leaned on it on a start where I don't think he had as much feel or as much comfortability for a lot of his off-speed pitches. We know the slider has been a bit of a work in progress this year, but he mixed in a lot more cutters, curveballs, changeups, all those pitches thrown kind of equally, 53% in total, and the fastball, 47% of his total pitches, just a tick above his yearly average. And again, not very much hard contact, not a lot of men on base. It was very, it was the right way to face the attack this Dodgers lineup where 
They're not really going to swing and miss very often. They don't strike out very often, especially that top three of Betts, Freeman, and Will Smith, three of the uh, just the unbelievable approaches, power, all those things that those guys so put good. together. It's terrifying when you have the ending coming up. You're like Betts, Freeman, Smith. Damn it. Crap. But he looked great. Trez looked great against them, and there was not really any trouble at all against them this entire game. No. I mean, this is seventh career start with seven-plus innings pitched and one or no hits allowed, only four hard-hit balls on the day, and he now has a 2.36 ERA at City Field this year, or maybe not this year, maybe just in general. Johnny Stats, can you clarify that one for us there? But Scherzer's pitching well at home this, this year. Thank you very much. So, yeah, this year, 2.36 CRA. He's been great at home. Gave us a really good start. Like, that's all you could ask for from Max Scherzer. Vintage Scherzer, the, the dominant pitcher that we're accustomed to seeing. That's exactly what he was. It was great. But, of course, we just really couldn't get the offense going again with this one. And it's going to happen. But shout Jeff McNeil got a double for us early in the game. So, that was good to see him swing the bat a little bit better. Hit some hard hit balls uh, in the dot in game two as well. So, Maybe he's starting to come out a little bit of a slump that's been going on all season for him. Brand Nimmo drove in a run. And then, of course, you know, we kind of gave it right back as soon as Scherzer came out of the game. Trevor got new Met, just happened to have to face the top of the order again. Like, it's hard when you see Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman and all those guys, and they came through and, and gave them a run to tie it back up. Yeah, similar situation as um, you know, the night before where God gave up a leadoff walk. And when you give up a leadoff walk late in the game to a team that's as good as Los Angeles Dodgers, especially as good as the top of the order is, giving up leadoff walks are really just a recipe for disaster. I wanted to see exactly who he walked against. I can't remember it right now. It was yeah, it was Outman. Outman at the bottom of the order. You walk, you walk someone at the bottom of the order. It's a really, it's a really rough situation for you, especially against this team. Then Miguel Rojas had a single, so not that bad of work by uh, by Brooks Raley to eventually get out of this inning with only one run allowed after the Mookie Betts single. It just, eh, it was. I mean, it's, I don't know, Trevor Trevor got is a good, he's, he's a good little piece, but he's not exactly a high leverage reliever. This was a situation where. Uh, Gary and Ron, the broadcast, were begging for David for Max Scherzer to hand the ball, David Robinson for the six out save, but Trevor Gott came in and then uh really, really good. And Robertson though came in the ninth and then did have us give us a shutdown inning in the tenth. We've been blessed to have such elite closers two years in a row, and that's allowed us the Mets after this win on Sunday to have a sixteen and three record in extra innings since the start of two thousand twenty two, six and one this season overall. Which again, as crazy as this season has been, having that record in extra inning games is pretty amazing to see after all this, especially because those are such toss-ups but they're much less of toss-ups when you have a pitcher to pitch that first uh leg of the extra inning or the second leg if you're home or away where they can definitely shut someone down and not give up a run with a man already starting on second base really great and then you said Luis Guillorme fa- failed to get down two bunts to start that at bat because yeah with a man on second that is the one time where the math actually does make sense you only need exactly one run to win a game so giving up the out means very little and then him dropping the bunt down not getting it down twice and then just slashing one up the first baseline got himself redemption for the two uh, two out strikeout against Caleb Ferguson with the man on third base on Saturday night and Mets won. Yeah, and uh, he Guillaume. I don't know if you caught on the broadcast, but he looked a little like he had a little something with Nick Robertson on the mound. Weirdly, is that like maybe one of the few times in baseball that Robertsons have both been on the mound to end a game in extra innings? I want to know. Can John find that out for us? That's a real. It's like a Tim Kirchner stat right there, but. Uh, he came like in on those on those pitches because obviously Guillaume was showing bunt. It's kind of something you're told as a pitcher sometimes. Like if he's showing the bunt early, throw at him. Like make him get out of the way. And uh, Guillaume took a little exception to it. Kind of gave him a little bit of a stare. Maybe it woke him up a little bit. Maybe put a little chip on his shoulder. Got that hit down the line. Mets win. They seemed very excited, which is good. Like it felt like finally, like a yes, here we go. Like we got a win against a good Dodgers team. If there is like a silver lining in losing this series to the Dodgers, the pitching was pretty solid two of the three games. It was just the bats couldn't wake up. And to be fair, 
the Dodgers do have good pitching. So, like, it's understandable why the Dodgers could maybe shut down the bats a little bit here coming off of a long break. But the Mets pitching did look really good in this series, especially the starters. That's something to keep an eye out for moving on here as we get towards the Chicago White Sox series. But overall, good to end the series on a win there. That's that's solid for us. Got the White Sox coming into town who don't play very good baseball. They haven't had a very good year. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. We do have to bring in John, though, for the estimate. I don't – did we even do one? I don't remember. My brain yeah, is like it was, such it, it was total bases by hitters leading off innings, and there's a lot of math that I hope John did. But I definitely feel like I won with under under 52. Oh, I, I got the math. You guys have never been so far off. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was it was kind of a it was kind of a dart throw. I acknowledge that, but um, yeah, leadoff hitters in this series. It's funny because Brandon Nimmo leads the series off for the bats, which with what looked like a home run, um, didn't get quite over that orange line. I was thinking immediately, like, oh, we're off and running with estimate, but um, yeah, not even close. There were twelve total bases. <laughs> Five leadoff hitters in the series, so just a bit outside, sort of a little yeah. Bob Eucharism. But um, yeah, fun win today. Really fun win. Glad that uh, they were able to pull that one out. And now the Mets have a lot of intra-league games coming up. Three against the White Sox, three against the Red Sox, two with the Yankees. Um, so we have a Mets-White Sox-themed estimate. But first, always got to throw a little, uh, little wrench course. at you guys. I want to know, what is your guys's Ideal sock length. What kind of socks are you rocking? Good question. It is a sock switch up for the yeah. Mets this week. I think. Um, yeah, we're changing socks. White to red. Yeah, socks. Socks for me change on season. In the summer, I like just wearing a nice ankle sock. Sure. No, no screwing around. Just get that thing like right where the top of the shoe is. Not, not to be flashy. You don't want, don't want to, you know, don't want to ruffle any feathers there. But winter time, I do like a high socks. I don't, I don't like showing the ankle underneath the pants. It also gives more area for the wind to come in. New York City winters, but I'll do a higher sock in the winter. Let it go all the way up, even if you're sitting down. Don't let the jeans come up over the socks. But summertime, you know, let the ankles breathe. I think for choice, like my choice would always be a little bit of a high sock. I like I like right below the calf. I like to get right below the calf. But it also depends what shoes I'm wearing. Because if you're wearing a low a low cut shoe, you can't wear a high a high sock. But if you're wearing a high top shoe, then you can wear a little bit of a higher sock. Like you can't wear a low sock with a high top shoe and you're wearing shorts. That looks absolutely crazy. That's nuts. You're showing you're, off a lot of a lot of skin there. You're a big high sock guy. I knew big you were high, high sock guy. I've had I've had like phases in my life with my sock length. When I was younger, like 13, I, I never wanted it to be above like my shin. And then I got to like 17, 18, and I only wanted to wear high socks, the Nike. No matter how, yeah, see? And you're you're wearing the high whites. See, I used to think the high whites were the nerdiest sock back in the day. But then something clicked in me and I was like, the high white is like so bad, it's almost good. Yeah, 100%. It's got to be. It's got to be. Obviously. See, for me, once March rolls around, I'm just rocking the Sperry's. I'm going no socks as for as many months out of the year as I can. Ugh. I'm just I'm just going raw. But that's Ugh. just me. Teachers. Dude, wait, you wear no socks? You never wore Sperry's around Columbus? Come on. I, I, I put no the Sperry's down once I, like, after, like, three months into my first semester in college, I was like, I really just feel like a Dude, total loser wearing these. Same thing, because, like, in South Carolina, like, it was like, you better have some Sperry's. Like, it's so preppy. And literally, I think I wore them for, like, the first semester. I went home for, like, Christmas, and I was like, let's leave the Sperry's at home. Like, I'm not, I'm not bringing these back. I hate them. They tear up my feet. Anyone who says they're comfortable is a liar. Sperry's are the most uncomfortable shoe on planet Earth. 
You know what else is funny? John, growing up, all three of us grew up in a similar area, central New Jersey. And I think we I I think yeah. I also had the exact same timing of my high sock awakening and dismissal as you did. Where once I turned, I think it was more like 16, 17, I was like, I want to wear Nike shoes with high Nike socks. I guess the only thing I want to wear <laughs> to high school every single day. Cause I think the high socks when you're younger are like really closely for some reason associated with lacrosse. And I was, I really wanted to disassociate yeah. myself with the sport of lacrosse until I saw just the fashion value of the high white sock. And I still got plenty of high white socks in there. I like, I like the high white sock in general underneath with a white shoe, especially underneath a jean or a black pant. But yeah, that's a good, good sock conversation, John. I've, all, I've also got great calves. And let me tell you, <laughs> a high sock right underneath the calf, that's, you can let me t- show those bad boys off. It gets some eyes looking at the calves. I then. feel like you sometimes encroach on your calf, though. There's a little calf encroachment sometimes with you, Mark. I, n- I never touch the calf. I've noticed calf encroachment. You, you touch the calf. You have, no, you have no clue what you're talking about. It goes yeah. right underneath it perfectly. Mark, Mark yanks those socks Custom up like how, how he was at John Wooden's first practice every year, where the first thing he teaches the guys <laughs> of how to pull that sock up tight so there's no blisters. How to take a charge. Shoe. Tight. Pull that sock tight all the way up as tight as it goes. No ruffle. Listen. See, for me, there's a linear... Um, there's a linear gathering grouping between the short length and the sock length as well. Those two are tied. That's an XY equation. Yeah. You cannot, you cannot be uneven with those. If the short is high, the sock can be high. If the short is a little longer, that sock better not be sneaking yeah. past the shit. Otherwise it's a flag on the play. That's uh, I mean, these are good fashion tips, you know, like when in doubt, we got, we got a wide variety of things to talk about here on the Met stuff podcast, <laughs> but I guess we'll talk a little bit. Baseball. Um, Peek behind the curtain. I just joined, so I have no idea what you guys talked about. I don't know if you mentioned the distance on Brandon Nimmo's home run on Saturday night against Tony Gonsolin, a 445-foot blast. It was the second longest homer of Brandon's career, the longest he hit at Coors Field. So I tend to lean in the direction of that one doesn't count. We can't count that one because obviously atmosphere and things like that. I said that on an episode when he hit his last really long home run. I feel like it was like two-ish, three weeks ago when he hit what probably is now third home longest home run of his career. I forgot which series that was, but I was like, yeah, I said the exact same was thing. Was it Cleveland? I think it was I think it was the Cleveland series. He went to the uh, City Pavilion, the bridge out. Yeah, I've been that one then. Yeah, so probably a little longer ago, and I'm thinking in my head the whole summer is just totally jumbled in my mind. But yeah, that longest home run for Nimbo, that definitely doesn't count. So I guess this is the new longest home run. Good catch. This is the new longest home run. He's actually averaging 411 feet on his home runs this year. I mean, he is hitting absolute nukes. He also hit a 410 fly out to James Outman on Sunday, who like kind of lost it for a second, reached back over his Yeah, longest hit ball of the game. That's baseball, Susan. But anyway, the White Sox have a bopper of their own. We actually have two of the home run derby participants in this upcoming series, Pete Alonzo and Luis Robert, a.k.a. Cuban Trout. Don't call him Robert. Robert. That's that's how you pronounce it. It's not how you pronounce it. It's incorrect. We say Robert. That's what he said. Robert? Yeah, he, there's there's I, clips it, of him saying in Cuba is is it Rover, is, but it he is, said in America, it, he said I don't care too. Yeah, it's like widely pronounced by like like the pronunciation guide will say Robert because I think it's just the same word but just with basically a Latin like accent to give the pronunciation. So I'll definitely like lean Robert, but Robert is I think still technically correct. Jason Benetti calls him Robert. I'm I'm gonna call him Robert. I actually like Lubob. I think Lubob's a Lou really Bob's solid nickname. nickname. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a strong MLB nickname. But he's hit a 450-foot home run. Um, so we've got some big pop in this series. Uh, White Sox struggling. You guys will talk about that. Andrew Vaughn's another big bat, a guy that can mash. So estimate for this series is what will the longest home run be? Francisco okay. Alvarez also hits bombs, so you got to consider he him does. as well. 
Mm -hmm. Wow, interesting. Longest home run. I feel like we haven't done one of these in a while. I got I got to look around a few episodes ago. Then Pete hurt the wrist, so we had to shelf it. Figured yeah. what better time than the present. Yeah. I got to look up some uh, longest home runs this year by a couple of these guys just to get a little bit of a, a feel of how far. All right, I got to guess. You got to guess? You're not you I got my James. Yeah, I think I think I got I did. Right. I just looked it up. I got my guess. I got that my was a quick look up. That was a really quick look up. Yeah. I was like three keys. I, I have nothing to write it on. All right, I'm going to write it down. Well, James, uh, shout right. it out for the audio listeners. We appreciate everyone listening and watching. Of course, always do. Mm. You got it? I do have really it. Giving this one a lot of thought here. Okay. Giving it some, yeah. All right, here we go. Longest home run, Mets, White Sox. Three, two, one. 442. 414. Four. It's a huge Whoa, range. Not a short. carry. Not yeah, expecting James, some bombs James here. Gonna lose this one, man. That's come on. I mean, that's this that's is going to be over by the fifth inning on Tuesday. That's a big that's enough my range. Hot take. Yeah, but now I have I have like twelve feet of range up top, so I have up to four forty two, four fourteen. I have uh, I haven't I've been to like the high four twenties here. All it takes is Pete Alonso or Francisco Lindor, or Francisco Alvarez or Lindor even to get a hold of one, and you're you're, you're done. You're done, and not to mention Luis Robert hits nukes and so does jake burger jake burger's got some pop oh, i forgot about the bat. burger I mean, man yeah burger king yeah the bur the burgermeister has got a little bit of power in that bat but hey we'll watch that's why we watch the games john as always thank you for the estimate we appreciate it we'll uh wrap up the gentlemen. chicago white Sox uh preview here because we we haven't seen them this year this will be the only time we see them weird team weird team not good not good to what i'll say <laughs> uh bad team um I don't, I don't even care anymore about the jinx. Like, whatever. What has it done for us? <laughs> doesn't matter. So, I mean, you've got Yasmani Grandal, who I will say, thank goodness we didn't sign him all those years ago because he's <laughs> falling apart completely as a player, just completely falling apart. Tim Anderson has had about as bad of a year as you could this season. Uh, I know he's come back for injury. I like him as a player. I think he's a very good player, but boy, has he just been struggling. Uh, he hasn't hit a home run this year. Fun fact. I'm saying it. I'm doing it. I don't care. We're changing it up a little bit here. But like we mentioned, Lou Bob, I mean, just simply one of the best players in baseball right now. Offensively, he's been great. 26 homers, 24 doubles, 53 RBIs, 890 OPS. And he will make some plays in center field that make you say, wow. So they have some fun players, uh, you know, around the field. Yeah, and something that Robert did, has done this year to help himself, like, kind of re-break out in a big way that I think is pretty interesting and I think is a cool archetype of player that's not really spoken about that much is he's gone hyper-aggressive in his uh, approach to kind of find his like re kind of regain his, his swing a little bit. He was a guy who was really working diligently to cut his strikeouts over the last few years, but he never really did that with an increased walk rate that went with it. So this year he's just been a little more selective in the zone and swing, swing a little bit less, but still just being as aggressive and swinging as hard as he can in general. The strikeouts have gone way up, but so is the power. I think that is, that's an adjustment for players who are elite at, not like not elite pitch recognition, but just elite, like have elite raw power and just being able to find the barrel on the bat would kind of do. And we just talked about Jake Berger before. Definitely want to shout him out briefly too. Jake Berger, since June 1st, has the highest average exit velocity on fly balls and line drives of any player in baseball. It's Jake Berger at 101.9 wow. and then Shohei Otani 101.1. That's one and two. So Jake Berger, elite okay. raw power when he gets the ball in the air. Also, they just recently recalled up Oscar Colas, who I think is a yes. fun, interesting, exciting player. He was having a lot of trouble lifting the ball and getting to power in his first stint earlier this year, but he went back to the minors, found it again, and he's swinging the bat a little bit better as he's going through now. The White Sox also just have like a lot of really interesting players that could be dealt to a variety of different teams at this trade deadline, especially on the pitching side. Guys like Lucas Giolito, Lance Lynn, 
maybe even Dylan Cease, maybe even Michael Kopech. I truly believe, may, probably outside of Lou Bob, that anybody on this team is available for trade. And they have they have talent at spots. They just they don't put it together as a good team. And we we know the the White Sox organization as a whole, just in general. But um, also shout out Liam Hendricks. Liam Hendricks, one of the best stories of the year. Uh, had leukemia, came back from it, has started pitching again. It's phenomenal. Just one of the best stories in all of baseball. Always root for him. He's currently on the IL, I believe. So I don't know if he's going to pitch, but you got to shout out Liam Hendricks because he is the man. This is just like a super bizarre team. It's a bizarre team. I mean, Tony La Russa's not there anymore, so that's like a huge plus for them. But otherwise, I don't know what to make of it. I really don't. Like, when things go right for them, they can play, and you go, oh, that's a good team. But it just feels like a lot of things have not gone right for them for the last, like, two and a half years. No, definitely. I mean, this is a team that every single year they're kind of built similar to the way we've criticized the Padres and, and the Blue Jays and to a degree the Mets is here cream uh, team building strategies where it's like after you get past those like those horse pitchers, like there's not that much in their pitching cupboard. And Dylan Cease had a really rough start to the year. Michael Kopech had a really rough start to the year. Lance Lynn had a really stuff, rough start to the year. All three of those guys have bounced back in a big way. I think all three of those guys have helped the White Sox team actually find level. And they're not like, because they play in the AL Central, they're not like totally dead, which is kind of, crazy that as of right now they are only nine games out of their first place in their own division with a 40 and 55 record which is insane to think about <laughs> the team was last in the al east to six games over 500 and that team last in the al east actually a tie between the yankees and the red sox just wanted to mention that but this team yeah. again as many trade pieces as they have and as far out of it as i think many people believe they are they, they i don't know if they think that they are they they gave andrew Benintendi the <laughs> biggest contract in team history this offseason and i think he has one home run um, I'm sure he'll hit one this week because yes. I just said that, but whatever. Again, we don't, we don't care about Jinx anymore. We're trying to change things up. I think Andrew Vaughn's a really interesting player in their team too. Super high draft pick, really fun uh, college player. He went to UC, right? Berkeley, Berkeley kid? No, Berkeley. Andrew Vaughn is Oregon State. Oh, no, Oregon. he was UC Berkeley. You're right. You're yeah. right. You're right. Or uh, UC Berkeley. We've, we've seen a lot of Pac-12 players, I feel like in the years past, like a little bit, besides Adley Rushman, who's like 25 years old when he came up, really take a lot of time to adjust to Major League Pitching. Vaughn and Spencer Torgerson are two in the name. It just I think the Pac-12, a lot of those games are played at like very high elevation. So I think a lot of those guys have a little bit of trouble with pitch recognition when they come to the league. But he just does everything like a little bit above average. And I'm so certain this guy's going to click one day. So that hasn't happened yet, but I, I do like Andrew Vaughn a lot. He's pulling the ball more this year than he has in years past. He's fun. And then one more very weird player I want to shout out this series someone who i was i wrote a, a blog about this dude in 2020 before 2021 season his name is gregory santos he came to the oh, he's sick came to the white Sox by way of the giants organization throws 100 miles an hour with really crazy sliders he's really gotten the pitching ninja treatment a lot recently he looks like one of the most disgusting relievers in baseball literally search james shannon gregory santos i wrote a blog about him in 2021 really really hilarious i shot him out right way now. back yeah shot him out way back then now he has popped off the way he has but Lots of interesting pieces on this team, but the just the whole has not exactly been what they hoped it would be this year. And we got pitching matchups this series as well. Jose Quintana is going to make his mess debut this series, which it could be fun. Carlos Carrasco versus, versus Lucas Giolito, Tuesday, 7-10. Carlos Quintana, Jose Quintana against Tuki Tucson, who is on the White Sox, apparently. What? Yep, Wednesday at 7-10. And then Thursday matinee, I'll be back in the ballpark with the boys that day. Hopefully, even there is a little bit of rain in the schedule. I did see that. Justin Verlander versus Michael Kopech, Thursday afternoon matinee. All right. Yeah, I mean, this is a very winnable series. This is a very, very winnable series. And if the Mets want to have any shot at making some noise, got to win it at the absolute least. At the absolute least, the sweep is 
something that we desperately need. So hopefully they just come out, play good baseball, give us good pitching like they did in this Dodgers series, especially with the starters all relatively did a pretty solid job. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Like I honestly can't stress anymore. It's just like go out there, play. Hopefully they play better than the other team. We win some games. Yeah, this is, uh, the White Sox are coming off, though, probably their best series in, in months. They just took two or three from the Braves in Atlanta. The first time Braves had lost a home game, I think it was in like four weeks. First time they lost a series, and it was over a month. So, um, yeah, going to have to come with that. But we are missing Dylan Cease and Lance Lynn, who have been the White Sox two best pitchers for most of the year. Yeah, all right. Well, I think that's pretty much it for this episode. Uh, they're giving away a jersey, I believe, right, on Tuesday, I want to say, for the Mets game. Let me just look this up before I officially say anything. But I know that there's like actually like a pretty cool giveaway for the Tuesday game. If you guys are going to be in town and able to make it out there, let me just pull up the Mets schedule real quick. Yes, it's a Mets basketball jersey. It's cool. It's a cool giveaway. 15,000 fans. Grab yeah. yourself a ticket for that one. And then on Wednesday, they're giving away uh, Topps baseball cards because I think it's baseball card day, which I think is a thing like nationwide that Topps is trying to do. So a couple good extra reasons to come out to the ballpark as well. Make sure you guys uh, drop us a follow on all our social media at MetsUp on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you're looking for the YouTube version of this, go check out the New York Mets YouTube channel and subscribe over there. Uh, if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Odyssey, drop us a rating, drop us a review, download, and subscribe. Follow James on Twitter at James underscore Shiano. And me, Giraffe Neck Mark with a C. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching, and we will catch you at the end of the White Sox series for the next episode. Peace out. Peace out. See you guys next time.